0: I'm Denzel Muhammad, and this is Job Makers. There's a lot of misinformation about immigrants in the US, and leaders have exploited this ignorance for political gain. We often forget that the United States is a nation of immigrants, founded on the idea of being a haven for those seeking Freedom and opportunity. And if immigration was such a bad thing for the country, why do we continue to have it? For David Desigard Kalik, deputy director of the nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank the Fiscal Policy Institute, and assisting visiting professor at the Pratt Institute, his work focuses on the impact of immigrants in local and national settings. And what he's found should come as no surprise: immigrants and refugees are a net benefit to the U.S. and always have been. In fact, we owe a lot to immigration for revitalizing Metro USA after population loss and economic decline since the 1960s, enriching our culture and cuisine, making our communities safer, creating jobs and businesses, and giving us a competitive edge when it comes to innovation, as you'll find out in this week's JobMakers podcast.
1: David Disigard Kalick, thank you for joining us in Jobmakers. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about uh, the kind of research that you uh, do.
2: So we look at immigration, um, especially the economic uh, aspects of immigration in the United States. We focus in New York state in particular because we're based here. It's also a very particularly interesting story about immigrants in New York. But uh, we, we also look at immigration around the country. And we have partners in most of the 50 states, uh, think tanks that are based at the state level, looking at state level immigration issues around the country.
1: And what have been some of the successes of the Fiscal Policy Institute in New York City in terms of how you've been able to influence uh, policymakers?
2: So very recently, we've been involved in this campaign to allow for undocumented immigrants who are excluded from any of the benefits that were recently extended to other workers during this pandemic to be able to include them in an excluded workers fund in New York State. That was really exciting, a $2.1 billion fund that allows for people to get basically the same level of benefits as other workers would have gotten if they got uh, unemployment insurance last year. So that's a a pretty substantial amount and really something that can sustain a family in these really tough times. So that was a very exciting thing to be part of.
1: The undocumented population of Massachusetts, it's about 20% of the total immigrant population. And you spoke about that victory with New York City when it came to covid relief for undocumented immigrants what is the undocumented population of new york city
2: so it's um it's about 400,000 in new york city it's about 600,000 in new york state that's out of 4 million in the state so you know it's 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 not it's not the majority by any means but it's not a trivial por- por- portion of the population either and of course when we're talking about people we're also talking about families and as as you know People live in, these, in, in many different kinds of households and many different kinds of families. And it's very common that uh, a person who's undocumented might also be living with another person who's not uh, undocumented or even and with kids who were born in the United States. So the number of people affected, I would say, is even bigger. But 600,000 is also a substantial number.
1: So tell us about your own immigrant experience. Sure. So you, were, you were born in New York City, but, but you, your journey didn't really start there.
2: I was born in Western Massachusetts, actually. Um, oh, really? But, but that was uh, a, a long and, and maybe not terribly relevant story. Um, but uh, and I grew up in Connecticut, and then I moved to New York City as an adult. My family is from Eastern Europe, um, and really kind of across Eastern Europe, and a little bit of other places as well. Um, most of them were Jewish. Mostly, they came after pogroms in Eastern Europe, and came essentially as refugees. That was that was at a time before we had the current refugee resettlement policies. But you know, came fleeing. Horrible situations in the, in the in the in the villages and towns that they came from, and with you know really not a lot of other choices and not a lot in their pockets and arrived here and made their way. And I mean, I will say that has been, even though it was my you know some generations back, very deeply embedded in in my own family's experience of who we are and how we fit in in America. Both in a positive way, you know, I mean, I feel like we're very conscious of the idea that this was a place where we could come. You know, we as a family with 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 nothing or, you know, leaving everything behind and and living, you know, by my parents generation quite comfortably. And also, uh, you know, with some sense of, I will say, appreciation for the idea of the immigrant experience that to me feels like, you know, there, there's a, there's, there's a great uh, radio program you may know called the feet in two worlds. And I, I love that title. I think it's, it's a very nice way of saying, you know, yeah, you have, you're, you're on the inside and you're on the outside. And I think, you know, if you think of, of American literature, for example, there's this huge tradition, especially in the 20th century of, of the, you know, the person who's on the inside and the outside um, writing about, you know, what is, what is the experience of, of growing up here, but also having your head in a different kind of consciousness and and in a positive way, like you know some stuff and have a a culture that other people don't have access to, and in a negative way, right? That you feel maybe like you're not entirely always included or when people say things, you know, you're not entirely always thought of as part of what they mean when they say American.
1: That's almost a quintessential American kind of thing, though, just having these different traits, uh, belonging, not always fully belonging, um, because we have such tremendous diversity. So, so funny, I, if I can say, I mean, I think that that is totally to me,
2: that is very much what America is about. Right. And and in fact, if you think of it, you know, I, in, in I want to say in somewhat philosophical terms, right? if you think of it as like a process of uh, it's not a, it's not so much about being as it is about becoming. Right. It's always a question of becoming like what are we we're always integrating. We're always having one foot in and one foot out. I think that's that's a very creative and exciting kind of thing. And, you know. It is part of the tragedy to my mind of the way that the immigration debates have been so polarized today is if you, you know, if you go to other countries and have, you know, hear them talk about America, they all are very much aware, I think, that America is a country that's always been about immigration. It's always been reshaped as people come here. And it's uh, it's always been a process of becoming. And we still are in all of the complicated ways it's happening. It's still happening today.
1: I want to get into your research head right now. Our audience really wants to know certain things about immigration. This podcast is based on the idea that immigrants are inherently entrepreneurial, and so they start businesses and create jobs at a higher rate, that they're a net benefit to our economy. Can you tell us definitively if immigration benefits us economically?
2: Well, of course it does. I think, you know, I will say at at the overall level, I really don't think there are any economists who seriously doubt that idea that there is an overall benefit. And even, you know, you can talk to George Borjas, or maybe you have, will admit that overall, there's a positive benefit to immigration. So there may be, you know, people raise questions about details and, um, and, and whether or not what we want our policies to look like, could it be better? But overall, for sure. I mean, one of the things that we've been quite interested in is the idea. So first of all, when we're talking about immigration as i said we're talking about not just country of origin we're talking about a much more diverse group than i think people often appreciate so immigrants work in all kinds of jobs it is um of course you know it's well known that people work in landscaping and construction and some of the lower wage uh, jobs but They also work in healthcare and in engineering and in some of the higher wage jobs, as well as many, many accountants and architects and people in the middle. So I think immigration is much more diverse than people recognize. And in that sense, um, you know, people are contributing. I also think, you know, if you're you're talking about entrepreneurship, it is, I think, one one of the rare areas where people will generally acknowledge, yeah, immigrants are more entrepreneurial. I will say for good reasons and bad reasons, you know i think that immigrants are 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 more entrepreneurial you could say by nature i mean they they this is a self selected group who have decided to take a big risk go somewhere else try to make something new for themselves that is an entrepreneurial kind of decision to be making and so it's not too surprising that those are people who might be more entrepreneurial entrepreneurial in general you know also they come with a with a set of ideas and even potentially you know products and and potential services that they may have from the countries that they came from so Uh, And they may, in fact, also be, in some cases, in many cases, you know, able to sell those products or services to people from their community to begin with, and then expand to the bigger, bigger uh, world. So I think in that way, it all kind of makes sense. And I would put that all in the kind of positive column of why immigrants are more entrepreneurial. I mean, the negative column is that people are also often excluded from jobs that they might otherwise be able to do, and um, you know, might be preferable for them at least in the initial stage. So if you're an accountant and you apply for a job at an accounting firm and they don't accept you because you might not look like what they think an accountant should look like, or maybe your English is not perfect, or maybe you don't have references because you just came to this country. What do you do? Well, you might start your own accounting firm, which might be just you, you know, hanging up a shingle. That's what I would say is, is, is a more negative kind of, of uh, entrepreneurship. Sometimes those turn out to be very good. So there are plenty of stories of people who were kind of forced into that by being excluded, but then who made good and, you know, did great. But I think no matter how you you, you parse it, it's true that the rates for immigrants are higher than for U.S.-born, and the rates for some groups are pretty off the charts compared to others.
1: So we're looking at numbers here, and under the Trump administration, for instance, let's say Refugee admissions were ended up being capped at 15,000. We didn't even get anywhere close to that, partly because of the pandemic. Under the Biden administration, it's been increased to 62,500 this year uh, for the next f- uh, fiscal year. These numbers just seem very arbitrary. Um, when I think of the economy, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like one person comes and takes a job from another person, and then that's it. Econ- you know, as an economist, you you know these things, sure. but these sort of arbitrary numbers, like. What is there any way to determine an optimal number of immigrants, whether from a economic well particularly from an economic standpoint?
2: Yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, I think you definitely start with what you said, which is it's right, that that that, that idea of a zero-sum game is is just I think misguided. You know, when people People sometimes think it's 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 all just a kind of simple supply and demand as as you, if anybody took an economics class might remember that, you know, if you have more supply, this to be less, uh, you know, it's going to it's, it's going to be bad for the other workers. I think, you know, that's that's true. If you only read page one of that textbook, you know, if you kind of go on to page three and four and five, you, what you see is the the important thing that's in that part chart is, you know, all else equal. Um, you know, if, if that's the only thing you're talking about is more workers and nothing else changes, then sure there are going to be fewer opportunities for other workers. But of course, that's not the case. What happens is when more people come, that also means that they have families that they buy stuff that when they, they take the money that they earn and they invest it. So they're expanding the overall economy in the same way as it does if you or I have kids and they grow up mean, you know, you want the economy to be expanding. You don't necessarily have to have more, more people to do that, but it's, it's certainly a possibility to have a bigger economy at the same time as you have more people and more workers. So I think that's what we see over and over again. The optimal number, you know, I think um, I would say that that there are many things we're achieving through through immigration policy, and so you mentioned the refugee resettlement numbers. One of the things is clearly a sense of moral obligation, like what we what we do. Refugees are people, so we have different categories of people coming as immigrants. Right, people who apply as, uh, to get a green card, people who um, who come on temporary visas, people who come undocumented, people who come across uh, illegally and stay in the country over over time. And refugees are people, people who are asylum seekers who come to this country seeking asylum. People, refugees are people who come from some of the most horrific situations in the world and leave those places because they have no other choice, wind up often in resettlement agencies. I mean, I'm sorry, in resettlements, you know, in, in refugee camps for years. And then some tiny fraction of them, I'm of the I think of the 20 million people in refugee that the UN that the UN High Commission on Refugees uh, identifies as, as, um, in need of resettlement of the 20 million, I think 1% of them have been resettled. So there's some, you know, vast number of refugees looking for resettlement and the United States through the refugee resettlement program, primarily I would say is trying to fulfill a humanitarian obligation to do its part as other countries also do to welcome refugees to this country. It's also true that when they come here, they benefit us. You know, they benefit the societies. That they we, we see this in you know in New York State, uh, where most of the re- resettlement is in upstate cities. You know, in Buffalo, in Rochester, in Syracuse, in Albany, in Utica. You see a revitalization of the downtown areas that comes from uh, refugees moving into areas that um, that U.S. born people have often moved out of. So I think there is a benefit to us, but I would just underscore that, to my mind, with refugee resettlement in particular, the goal is to be part of a global effort to, you know, to fulfill this humanitarian mission. Other important categories to me are family unification is really important. You know, if you are in this country, you may have been here for many years and you have a, uh, you know, a wife, kids, parents in another country, being able to to have that family come and be reunited in this country is I mean, you know, that was the story of my family. It's 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 I think a great part of American culture and I think it adds to to America as well. Of course, if you have a family to come to, then they're going to support you as you get rooted here and start to, you know, and, and start to become part of American society and the American economy.
1: A lot of actions at the state level though over the years, um many restrictive, uh but others also, you know, allowing undocumented immigrants to have in-state tuition in states like Kansas. Allowing them to have driver's license. Uh, during the pandemic, we saw that certain states uh, adjusted their credentialing and licensing requirements for healthcare workers so that they could have more healthcare workers in the hospitals. One thing you brought up was family reunification, and that is the cornerstone of American immigration policy as it is. Our own research has shown that uh, for high-skilled professional immigrant professionals, social capital is extremely important in their ability to climb the ladder to be able to succeed you know if you're here in a country alone it's, it's much harder if you don't have family with you obviously. but in the past few years a discussion has come up on immigration based on skills. Uh, there are certain countries that have point systems you know maybe we want to look at just the immigrants who have the skills needed in uh, industries where we are lacking workers. What is your position on on that? I, you know, I feel
2: like I'm very appreciative of how well we do with the immigration that we have. And I feel like, to my mind, a much better focus on skills would be how do we develop skills among the U.S. farm workers and immigrants who already are here, which we don't do a great job of for either group. You know, I think I'm I'm skeptical about the idea of filtering by certain skill levels. I mean, for one thing, you leave out lots of people. And people who want to come here and have been, as we've seen, you know, do do well over time in the United States. Otherwise, there are lots of examples of super entrepreneurs, as well as the kind of, you know, just people who open stores and do regular kinds of uh, more more bread and butter economic development work who would not have qualified under those kinds of programs. They might have been kids, for example. Um, they might have been people who didn't have the educational background that that, uh, um, that might be required. So I'm. Um, you know, I feel like there's the question about who gets left out. I'm also not so convinced that we can do a great job of figuring out who the right people are, you know, to, to let in. I think sure there might be times when there are shortages of nurses. And so, you know, do we want to think about having people who already have a nursing degree admitted? Yeah, that seems like a good idea, but Let's also then recognize what is that telling us? It tells us that we're not producing enough nurses. And so how do we make sure that we're investing in the American system for educating nurses, make it open to everybody who wants to do it so there'll be lots of immigrants who be part of that, um, but also lots of people who aren't immigrants? You know, I think I'm I'm skeptical about the idea that a skills system is the best way to do it. I I also can't, I mentioned George Forhas before. I don't want to pick on him in particular, but I I can't help um, remembering that that he once did this Calculation, I guess, thought about what it would be like, and he he was, I think, at the time quite in favor of the idea of a skills based system. But he also acknowledged that if the, if we had a skills based system, he would not have been able to come.
1: It's a different type of selection. We talk about immigrants as being self selected to have this ambition and this drive and this ter- determination to take a risk. It's a very different kind of selection in this way. And as you say, who knows if we if we will really get it right? Another thing you brought up is revitalization of neighborhoods and economies. This is a part of the conversation that I think gets really, really ignored. So as an example, uh, when the census data came out and we saw which states were gaining and losing congressional seats, uh, the Boston Business Journal reached out to find out what role immigration played in Massachusetts being able to hold all of its congressional seats. And I dug into the data a bit and saw that immigration, immigration to Massachusetts increased by 50% since 1990. Domestic migration increased by 10%. And so migration was what allowed Massachusetts to be able to hold on to its congressional seats. And your research has consistently shown that for many metro areas, immigration is what saved them.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's 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 extremely clear. Um, if you look at the 50 largest cities in the United States, many of them lost population in the mid-20th century, so like 1960 to, uh, to 1980, I think 20, so, so 27 and lost population, there were a number that rebounded, and all of the ones that rebounded did so with immigrants playing a very substantial role in that rebound, even more so than what you're describing in Boston. The ones that, how many of the ones that, how many, how many cities were there that rebounded without immigrants? Zero. You know, so, I mean, I think that doesn't prove that immigrants cause a population rebound, but I would say if your idea is that you're going to see a population of a city rebound without immigrants, there are zero examples of that happening in the 20th century.
1: That's such an excellent point, and I'm glad that the research has found that. You know, if you want to talk about
2: disproportionate levels of, of immigrant entrepreneurship, we 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 really focused there on what we called main street businesses. So the idea was that, Main Street businesses are the kinds of businesses that have a, you know, that, that have given a given neighborhood its character, have a storefront, you know, this place you can walk into and are very important to this question of revitalization of cities that have seen declining populations. Because when you have a Main Street that has boarded up storefronts and, uh, you know, feels unsafe or uncomfortable to walk through, that has a lot of that that that, that causes a lot more negative repercussion than just in that storefront. It obviously affects the sense of whether people wanna be in that neighborhood, live in that neighborhood, work in that neighborhood. So what we see over and over and over again is the story of in a place like that, an immigrant family comes in, sees an opportunity. The storefront is pretty inexpensive to rent because it's been boarded up. You know, They start a restaurant maybe. People start to come to that restaurant. Next door, somebody opens a food shop. You know, Next door to that, maybe somebody opens a, a, you know, a clothing store. And little by little, the area becomes revitalized, you know, becomes a place people want to come to. The, if you're going to look at the economic impact of that, of course, it matters how many jobs are created there and what are the revenues and putting the putting the, the properties back on the property tax rolls. Those things all count. But I would say that those are a small part of the economic impact. What really has happened is that the whole neighborhood has begun to get to be more appealing. And you see ripple effects through the housing uh, market and through you know safety and you know in some ways New York is such an extreme example of that that people forget it but 1970s that was the story of New York City but New York City population dropped by one million people from uh, from eight million to seven million so that means there were a million people's worth of empty apartments the Bronx was burning people you know landlords were were setting fire to their apartment buildings in order to collect on the insurance like it was it's it's fairly unimaginable from today's perspective of new york state real estate but that's i mean new york city real estate but that's what it was the case then what changed the immigrant population right in the difference between before and after you know 1970 to 1980 the us born population stayed basically the same in fact the us born population is today about the same in new york city as it was at the beginning of that period when it was low right the, what's different is we today have 3 million immigrants in New York City, so they more than made up for that, uh, that population loss.
1: You make me think of uh, Fields Corner in Boston, which was in heavy economic decline for six, several decades. Uh, the rent was cheap, so Vietnamese immigrants moved in. They started some nail salons and some restaurants and some food stores, as you mentioned. And now the area has been totally revitalized with beautiful storefronts sidewalks uh, that don't need repair anymore, it's street lights it's safe. And that's a really vivid example of, of the kind of revitalization you're talking about. I think what the population growth in the cities and even this idea of excluding immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants from COVID relief speaks to is the point I wanna get at finally with you is that immigration is seems to be considered this very separate issue of American politics and American culture. It's like, this is a thing we talk about over there. It's about people over there. And the fact of the matter is immigrants are and have always been all across this nation. In every state, we see some of the biggest growth in places like the Dakotas, um, not a traditional gateway uh, state for immigrants. And so it's, it's not a separate issue. And the undocumented immigrants, as an example, providing these goods and services, you know, delivering uh, home health aids, you name it, up at the forefront in many essential services and uh, industries. You know, if you want economic rehabilitation, you know, you can't just exclude one group like that because they're immigrants.
2: You know, in some ways, I feel like in recent years that that line between undocumented immigrants and other immigrants has softened some maybe partly because undocumented immigrants have been here so so long at this point. And it's, it's I, I, th- I think we've recognized maybe that we need to live with this issue for a long while. And hopefully hopefully we will also address it at some point. Um, but uh, in the meantime, we've also lived with it a long while. But I also think that the attacks on immigrants have not usually been very nuanced. You know, it's, it's been attacks on immigrants overall and in fact, not even just immigrants. I would say anybody who looks different, who looks like they might be an immigrant, who um it's been especially true about Latinx populations, but also we see the attacks on Asians. There's not somebody looking and saying, hey, are you actually an immigrant? Were you born in another country? You know, are you undocumented? I think they they're they're saying, you know, we assume a lot of stuff about uh you based on your what you look like, what your skin color may be. And, you know, I think that's uh yeah, it's it's it feels to me like not the america i know or love i mean i feel like it should be not what we stand for and i feel like there's some hope maybe in how far we've gone down that road that we can begin to look in the mirror and recognize ourselves and say wait a second that's not really the way we see and you know we're not really talking about what people's legal status is or what people's uh, immigration status is we're really we're really kind of talking about what their racial identity is or you know things that we may not want to be as as open about, and I think we just have to be able to get past that and say, people are people. I think there's value in maintaining your own distinction. Um, so you know, having one foot in and one foot out. I think that's a very positive thing about America, but also about being able to live together and say, no, this is we we are
1: this some of our parts that is you know a a pluribus unum. That's such a wonderful way to contextualize this whole discussion about immigration uh, when it comes to. Our present day, our past, and our future. David Kallick, thank you so much for joining us on JobMakers. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, likewise.
0: JobMakers is a weekly podcast produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. So happy that you joined us for this week's incredible podcast, if you know someone else we should talk to, email Denzel. That's D-E-N-Z-I-L at jobmakerspodcast.org. And please leave us a review. I'm Denzel Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another JobMakers podcast.